Welcome to Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. While you are there, you can learn more about who we are as a church, see the time and locations of our weekend gatherings, and see the different reoccurring ministries that happen on a weekly basis. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. So this morning we uh, wrap up our study of the book of Zechariah. So if you have your Bibles this morning, you can open up to uh, the last three chapters, chapter 12, 13, and 14 of Zechariah, page 1015 in the Bibles, if you're using one from the rack in front of you. And really what we've been talking about the last, whatever, couple months as we've been walking through Zechariah is that really Zechariah is God's plan, that God's plan is to do good for all of his people. Even though in the situation with, with, with Israel at the time of Zechariah, that they were, they were struggling because they had been in, in, in exile, in, in their, even though they were back where they were living in Jerusalem, they still were exiles because they were still living in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an environment that, that was being controlled by, by a whole other nation. And so they were struggling and saying, God, when are you going to come through with your promise? And, and so what Zechariah does is remind them that God's plan is to do good for all his people, that God's good is to bring justice to the entire world, not just to the pocket that his people inhabit, but that God's good is to bring justice to the whole world. That God's good is to transform his people into better imagers so that they would, we would look more like Jesus. That, that, that God's intent with you over your lifetime is for you to become a more accurate imager. That again, why is it that God takes so seriously the idea of making idols and images of him to worship? It's because God already made images of himself in us. And so the desire he has for us is to cause us to become better imagers. And, and, and so really, God's justice will fully and finally confront evil among all the nations. And that's really what we see at the end as Zechariah wraps up his visions and that what God has communicated to him. That God's justice, he will eventually and finally confront that evil everywhere in the world around us. So, so we, we struggle so much with seeing things that, that we don't understand why these things happen. We see things that are wrong. We hear them on the news and we experience them in our own lives. We experience things that we, we didn't deserve, we didn't ask for, but they happen. And, and we, we wonder, where is God in the midst of this? And the reality is that God will fully and finally confront that on every single level. And last week, as Travis preached in verses 9 through 11, or chapters 9 through 11, there was this picture Really, it was painting the picture of, of, of the first coming, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, coming as a shepherd king, a shepherd king that the people would reject and want something different. And so Travis walked through that last week, and so this week, in, verses, in chapters 12 through 14, we see not the shepherd king in Jesus' first coming, but we see the second coming of Jesus predicted and prophesied about but no longer as a shepherd king, but as a conquering king. 
the king who makes all things right, who brings justice to all the nations. And, and, and so, so we are called, basically, in Zechariah to look above the chaos and hope for the coming of Christ's kingdom. And during that time, we are motivated toward faithfulness in the presence. So, so we're called to look forward with hope that Christ will bring his kingdom and will make everything right. But in the meantime, in the present, wherever we are, whatever you face today, whatever you're dealing with, whatever's going on in the world around us, that we're called to faithfulness to Jesus in that time. And that's really exactly what Zechariah was communicating to the people of Israel through, through his prophecies and, and as he was talking. And so so chapter, chapter 12 of Zechariah, and, and, and really there's, there's, this is the final oracle, the final message that God gives Zechariah to give to the people. And so we're going to kind of walk through how it's broken up and, and kind of the different movements. And we're not going to necessarily go through every single verse in, 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 the, in these three chapters, but, but to give you an understanding of really what God's saying, because this is an incredibly encouraging and exciting thing that, that God does in the last few chapters of Zechariah. So in cha- chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, uh, God... Here, here, let me just read that for us. It says, the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. This is what God wants Zechariah to communicate. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Talking about the Lord of hosts, God's sovereignty, who he is, that he's creator and sustainer of all things. He says, behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. That there is this, there is this, there is war. There is difficulty. Israel's enemies are, at, are, 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 are on the move. And he says, on that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the people. All who lift it will surely, surely hurt themselves. And all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. For the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open. When I strike every horse of the people with blindness, then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. And he says in verse six, on that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. It says in verse seven, and the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Basically, in this first section of, of, of what Zechariah communicates to the people is that there will be a time that, that there is unbelievable war that surrounds them. He says that the nations will attack Jerusalem, but it says that God will show himself. He'll reveal himself, and God will make things right. And then he moves on into verse 10. 
And, and, and basically, what, what, what he says in verse 10 through 14 is that the very people from, from what Travis preached last week, that shepherd king that was rejected, that those very people who rejected that shepherd king will mourn and grieve because God will bring them to repentance. See, God is not just... God's not just defeating people, but he's, again, if we go back to the beginning of our study, it began with God's anger, and we have to remember that God's anger is different than your anger and my anger, that God's anger is always a restorative anger, where my anger against someone is pushes people away, God's anger draws people to him, that the safest place to be when you are a child of God and he's angry with you is right by his side. Where the safest place to be when I'm angry with my children is far away from me. I mean, that's, I'm working on that, but um, that's gonna take some time. <laughs> but but, but so, so God's not just out to destroy, he's out to restore. He's out to redeem. And so he brings the people of Israel to a place of repentance. Look what, what he says in verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, what does that sound like? When they look on me, on him who they have pierced. We look forward to the crucifixion when Jesus sacrificed his life. On me, of whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. He says that there will come a day when the people, the very people who rejected their shepherd king will repent and surrender and not just pledge allegiance, but pledge their lives, their heart, their minds to that shepherd king who now comes as a conquering king. It's interesting that, that, that it talks about the house of David here, and it talks about how one might mourn for a firstborn, and you go back to the, they would remember in this, in this prophecy, they would remember back to the house of David when, when David mourned for the son that didn't live. And that his whole house and the whole kingdom was in mourning. And, and what, what, what Zechariah is saying is that when they realized that this shepherd king, the Messiah, Jesus, who came to save them from their sins and give them salvation, when they realized that's who they rejected, that there will be that kind of mourning, that extent of mourning, as if it's in a house where, where, where there was a stillbirth. And, and he says, that's what it'll be like. And that God will bring repentance. You see, even our repentance and our confession of sin is God's gracious work in our lives. God brings us to a place. In verse 13, 1, there's, there's, there's this, at the beginning of 13, there's one verse. And I'm not going to talk about this yet. We're going to spend a decent amount of time on this at the end. But here's what, here's what the prophet says in 13, 1. I think this is the key verse of the entire book of Zechariah. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Put a mark on that verse. We'll come back to it. 
but to continue on to understand what, what this message is that Zechariah says in, in 13, starting in verse 2 through verse 6, God begins to purify his people and, and, and prepare them for his kingdom by eliminating the idolatry that's in the land and the false prophecy. Look at what it says. And it says, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts. He keeps coming back to this thing of on that day to remind them that there is a day coming, not just some loose, vague notion of what the future might hold, but on that day, that there is a specific day that God will move and he will act and he will make things right and he'll bring his justice. So he says again, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts being this big title of God's sovereignty and his power and his rule, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I'll remove the land, the land, the prophets, and the spirit of uncleanness. In other words, he will make those things right and, and that God's true imagers will be the only reflectors of who God is. There won't be these false idols and these false reflections that lead people astray, but it'll be made right. And then in verse seven and verse 13, he begins to look at God's transformative work between the first and second coming of Christ. Look at, look at what he says in verse seven of chapter 13. He says, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. What happened when Jesus was arrested and placed on the cross? His disciples scattered. And they ran and hid because they were afraid and they didn't know what to do. This is, in the whole land declares the Lord, two thirds shall be cut off and perish and one third shall be left alive. And then he says, and I will put this third into the fire. In other words, he will take those who remain faithful to him, those who he, he's called out and who've responded to God's, God's invitation of salvation. And it says, I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. That's what we come back to. That's what we experience in the waiting time. If you remember uh, in, in, in Zechariah chapter seven, the idea of what do you do while you're waiting and that God's desire is to refine us. If you remember the story of, uh, 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 th th that missionary woman, um, Darlene Rose, that I shared uh, on that Sunday about how she saw God's refining fire in her life. And that's what he's saying right here. And he says, I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. That that's what God, that's a summary of what, what our lives look like that it is God refining us, God working in us, God sharpening us, God causing us and working in our lives to cause us to be better imagers of him. And then you, and then you come to verse 14, verses one through 15, and that's, that's, another, that's another section that, that all of those verses, it, it kind of, it, the flow of it, it kind of goes A, B, C, B, A. And it kind of is, it, it, it begins at one point and the, the outside of it is the same message the inside is the same and it comes to a climax. And really, in verses one through three and 12 through 15 of chapter 14, it talks about judgment and the Lord's intervention. 
And then in verses 4 and 5 and 10 and 11, it is that God is doing kind of almost a geological restructuring. Look, look at, look at the, the power of God on, on the earth. And, and you see in verses 4 and 5, it says, it says, on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem in the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And, and so he says that, that God will do a work and God will, again, make himself known among all the nations. The global community will see God as he is. And then the, 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 really the climax, the height of, of this is, is verses six through nine, where the Lord is recognized as king. Look at what he says in verses six through nine. He says, on that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. You see, it says that there will be a unique day that you won't recognize the sun or the moon because God's presence will be revealed. There's no need. Here's one of the cool things about when we're in the presence of God. There's no day and night at that point. God is the one who, 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 who is focused on and we just live in his presence. And it says, there'll be neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Saying that we can be assured that there will come a day when, when God makes all things right. And in chapter 14, starting in verse 16, we see the nations coming to feast. We even see nations that were previously enemies of God and rebellious against God and didn't believe in God and worshiped false idols and said that God didn't mean anything or, or that God was not significant and they were rebellious and even, even aggressive toward God. Look, look at what we see in chapter 14, verse 16. Then everyone who survives all of the nations that have come against Israel shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. They will eat together. All of these nations that remain who were once at war will be at peace. You see, nations that are at war don't share meals. <laughs> when you're at war with somebody, when you're angry with somebody, you don't share a meal. And so it says they'll come together and they will feast together. And it says, and if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt, Egypt, one of Israel's greatest enemies... That nation that took Egypt into, that took Israel into captivity for all those years, it says, it says that even Egypt will be included in those who are invited to this feast to worship God. Like what an incredible picture that even a nation that was once prohibited from worshiping because of their sins they are brought through God's anger to a place of restoration. And then, finally, the, the end of, of the book, as Zechariah wraps up in, in verse 20 and 21, we see a final peace on earth. And on that day, 
There shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar, and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil of the the meat of the sacrifice in them, and there shall be no longer a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Basically, it says that there will be complete peace on earth when the Lord on that day comes and makes everything right. And he restores those who call out on him, who receive and accept his forgiveness and his salvation. That that's, that's really the, the ending of the message that, that Je- Zechariah gives to the people, a message of hope and, and, and looking forward to see how God will fulfill his promises. But we come back to verse, verse, verse one of chapter 13, which I think is the linchpin of the gospel. And here's what, what chapter 13, verse one says. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. On that day, there will be a fountain opened. You see, water was really significant. Water was a part of their daily life. Fountains were a part of their daily life in Israel. It wasn't just decorative like it is today. Like if you have a fountain by your house, it's, it's probably decorative. It's for birds or, or things like that. It's, it's maybe lit with some colored lighting or, or maybe, you, maybe you're, you're in Las Vegas and there's the Bellagio fountains and they're really for, they're decorative. You don't see anyone swimming in the fountains. If you do, then they'll probably be taken by someone shortly thereafter. But, 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 but see, in, in Israel, fountains were, were practical, Everyone had, a, had basically a spot, a, a spot to be ceremonially cleaned in their homes, whether it was a fountain or some kind of baptismal type thing. And, and they, would, they, would, they would be, be cleaned and, and those kinds of things. And, and a fountain was the idea of life. And so it says, God will open another fountain. And then he says, the fountain's purpose would be to cleanse from sin in uncleanness. So here's, here's what would be going on in their minds is they would say, okay, but the fountain that was given to us was that which Moses brought down from the mountaintop. He brought God's law that we're called to follow. And that's the fountain that we've, we've been drinking from. Yet, yet the prophet says there will be another fountain open that will clean them from sin which by that very statement in, in Zechariah 13.1, it reminded the people that the law couldn't actually forgive sins. That the law was never meant to purify them, but it was there to help them to see and obey God, but it didn't cleanse them from their sins because no one is able to follow the law perfectly. And so there was this other fountain opened that God had planned from the very beginning of creation. And so looking at this, this fountain that's open to clean the sins of Israel and, and beyond, we have to ask three questions, why, how, and who? 
So why is this fountain open? Why would there be need for another fountain? And so really what, what the prophet is saying is that the old sacrificial system was not adequate to deal with sin. Even though they brought their animal sacrifices and they did all of these things that were symbolic of sin being removed from the people, that didn't actually remove sin from people. Because animals aren't sufficient. Sin's devastation is not foremost the injustice for human life that obviously when when people sin and sin in the world, it devastates other human beings, doesn't it? But that's not the biggest injustice of sin. It's the fact that it is an act of rebellion against God. And so the only way to truly satisfy God's justice for sin is for a sinless sacrifice. You see, hell is not, doesn't satisfy the, the, the consequence of sin. Hell is simply a destination, a place where sin will be isolated in. Hell is not the punishment. It's just the, it's the location. And yes, all around that, the punishment is separation from God for eternity. And so, and so really, the, what could satisfy God's justice for sin is that sinless sacrifice which is only found in Jesus Christ. And so the fountain was not from an animal sacrifice, but the fountain was that which flowed from Jesus' side, was that Jesus was pierced, and the fountain that flowed was a fountain that, that is full of forgiveness and restoration if we are willing to humble ourselves and confess our sin and surrender ourselves to Jesus. What did Zechariah know as he was communicating this message? Did Zechariah have a picture of Jesus on a cross? Probably not. He probably didn't know a lot because God only gave him so much. But what what Zechariah knew was he knew that God was yet to do something extraordinary that only God could do. Because it didn't matter to him what exactly was going to happen, but he knew that God would bring someone who would somehow be that perfect, sinless sacrifice for sin. And so that's why there was this, this new fountain open. Well, how? How did this happen? And, and if you go back to chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, I'll read those. You don't have to turn there. But in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, listen to what Zechariah says back then. He says, Here now, O Joshua the high priest, this is in the midst of the dream sequences, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch, the branch being a messianic term title of Jesus. He says, I will bring... My servant, the branch, for behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And now listen to this. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. That's how this fountain becomes opened. That on a single day, all of sin in history past and all of sin in history future is paid for on a single day through this prophesied about messianic branch that God will send. This is the coming of the Messiah, of Jesus, the removal of sin because he gave his life for us. Jesus' sacrifice 
dealt with sin once and for all in a single day. Then here in in this section in, in chapter 12, we read this in verses 10 and 11, but I want to read them again. He says, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, this is God speaking, God speaking through Zechariah. Listen, listen to the pronouns and the names. So that when they look on me, who's speaking here? God, right? When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. You want to know the Old Testament theology of God and Jesus the Son, that they are one? It's right here in the simple statement. When they look on me, on him who they have pierced. Jesus was God incarnate. And so he says, he says, when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And, and, and so he says, they will recognize that Jesus was the Messiah. But it's not too late because Jesus voluntarily gave his life so that on a single day, we could be forgiven of everything we've ever done. You see, he says there will be sorrow sorrow and repentance for the death of the Son of God. The core of the law was fidelity to God alone above all other gods. That's the core of the law. It was to be faithful to God alone above all other gods. To worship other gods or in maybe our, our context, other competing loves demonstrated the absence of belief, love, and loyalty. Doing works without having a heart surrender and aligned only to Yahweh has always been inadequate. Works without our hearts surrendered have always fallen short throughout all of human history. And this is so interesting because when you go back to King David, David, who, who, the, who the Bible says was a man after God's own heart, yet David basically took a woman who was married and because he was king, no one would stop him and he slept with her and she became pregnant and then he tried to cover it up by by having her husband sleep with her yet he was uh, faithful to the military and he, he wouldn't do that and so then eventually David had him killed. David commits adultery and murder Yet what's interesting, he was guilty of the worst sins, yet he never wavered in in his belief in God alone. He never worshiped and pursued other gods, but he sinned pretty profoundly. And here's the thing, his sin had lifelong consequences, but he was faithful to God alone. And, and, And that's why actions have never been able to save us or condemn us. It's who does our heart belong to. That's what will save us or condemn us. You see, the fountain that has been opened is that which has been looked forward to and back upon throughout human redemptive history. The God of Israel came to earth incarnate, 
voluntarily died on a cross as the only sin payment and rose again on the third day, when we surrender and believe in Jesus alone, then we are made clean by that fountain. That's what he's talking about. That is the fountain that will clean and and make us sinless. And so we've looked at why and how, but what about who? Because, because here's, here's what verse 1 says in 13. It says, And on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Well, last I checked, I'm not of the house of David or an inhabitant of Jerusalem. So who is this prophecy for? Well, for sure it's for the Jewish people. But here's the great news about that verse and the prophecy contained therein is that it is not only for the Jewish people, but it's for anyone who calls out to Christ and surrenders to him. And here's the proof of that. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 12, here's what Paul says, and he's talking about this very thing. He says, remember that you were, he's talking to the Gentile believers in, in, in Ephesus. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Verse 13, chapter 13, verse 1. The covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world, but now Christ But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, the fountain that was opened on that day. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, one new people in place of two. It's not the chosen people of Israel and those who follow Jesus. It is one new people in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile, reconcile. That's the whole point of God's anger and God's jealousy. Reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There's no more to say about who this promise is applied to because it's very clear that we are part of that group if we have come to Christ in confession of our sins and surrender. And so, so as we see that, that verse that God opened another fountain and that is Jesus Christ and his salvation. We experience the results and consequences of that. And so as we finish our study of Zechariah, what, what now? And we come back to the statement, the question that we've been asking all through this series. Are you becoming the kind of person who is prepared to participate in God's kingdom? We've talked about it in terms of, am I growing in justice? Am I growing in mercy? Am I growing in humility? So Saturday, yesterday, I had much of the day to myself, and I was thinking about today and, and, and the passage, and God brought me to a place that I decided I didn't want to go. <laughs> he brought a question to me that I didn't want to ask, because 
when I, when I think of me becoming the kind of person who's ready to participate in God's kingdom, I have lots of things that I can think through. But, but yesterday, I believe God asked me a question that drilled a whole lot deeper. And uh, because misery loves company, I thought I'd share that with you this morning. Um, you don't get off easy on this. So I'm gonna pass this to you. Um, here's the question that, that the Holy Spirit asked in my heart yesterday. What aren't you willing to give up to be the kind of person who is prepared to participate in God's kingdom? Instead of are you becoming the kind of person, the question shifted to what aren't you willing to give up to be the kind of person who's prepared to participate in God's kingdom? And as I started to wrestle with that, I started thinking of all these things that are out here. Things that I don't actually have to give up. Like, well, would you, would you give up this? Would you give up this? All of these scenarios that haven't happened, but I was thinking through, I think I could give this up. I think I could give this up. But then this is where it hit and hit hard. What am I still doing or thinking that I know doesn't align with God's character and his desire for me? Not what random things will I give up, but what am I doing today? Behaviors? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's thinking, what is it that I'm doing right now that I keep going to God and asking for his forgiveness? What that's saying is that's what I'm not willing to give up to be prepared to participate in his kingdom. And, when, and I don't know how that hits you. But what it did for me is I went from a place of saying, I'm I know that I'm becoming the kind of person who's being prepared to, to participate in God's kingdom. All of a sudden, in one moment, it was, what am I not willing to give up? Oh. It's what I just yesterday, as I was walking and praying around campus, asked God to forgive me of a particular way of thinking that I ask him to forgive me every single week. And my thinking hasn't changed. That means I'm not willing to give that up to be the kind of person who's prepared to participate in God's kingdom. So I would challenge you this week to ask yourself, what aren't you willing to give up to be the kind of person who's prepared to participate in God's kingdom? And how do you identify that? It's that behavior, that thinking, that relationship that you know doesn't align with God's character and his desire for you. And start there. Because that's what God wants to transform in you to help you become the kind of person who's ready to participate in God's kingdom. Next week, we begin our study of 1 Peter. And uh, what I'm super excited about is that in 1 Peter, it is the perfect follow-up to what we've been talking about. Because see, we've been talking about what is it, what, how, am I becoming someone who's prepared to participate in God's kingdom? And we've talked about justice and mercy and humility, but probably for some of us, 
we're saying, okay, but I need specifics. Justice and mercy and humility, yeah, we've kind of worked through those and defined those, but still, I'm a little bit fuzzy. Starting next week, we're going to be putting a lot of specificity to what it looks like for you and I to prepare to participate in God's kingdom. And I'll tell you this, up to this point in preparing for 1 Peter, God has changed how I see myself in this world. And I am so excited to share that with you from God's word. I'd like to invite the prayer team to come forward right now. I'd like to invite the prayer team to come forward. And I'm gonna pray here just in a second. But I wanna say this this morning as we, as we close off two things. One, I really wanna challenge you to ask God the question, what is it that I'm not willing to give up to be the kind of person who's prepared to participate and you look at what that thing is that you're holding on to. Every one of us needs to do that this week. But the other thing that I want to close with this morning is, is this verse, verse 1 of chapter 13 says that God will open up a fountain. And many of us have experienced that fountain. We've surrendered to Jesus and he's made us clean and he's forgiven our sins. But there's others of us who I know have not actually been able to experience that fountain yet. If you're here this morning and, and you know that, that you can't pay for your own sins, that you need to confess your sins to Jesus and you want Jesus to forgive your sins and bring salvation into your life this morning, I would challenge you to come forward after I pray and, and meet with one of these people who would love to pray with you and talk to you and walk you through because it is simple as calling out to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I confess that I am sinful and I want you to forgive me and I want my life to be surrendered to you and I would love for you to come forward this morning and meet with one of these, one of these people who would love to pray with you. Let me pray for us as a church. Father, we come before you this morning and I thank you for your provision that God, you were willing to make the hard choice and sacrifice your one and only son for our salvation and forgiveness. Father, I thank you for opening a fountain that in, 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 in one day, in one single day, it would deal with and pay for everything I've ever done. And so, Father, this morning I pray for those of us who, who know you and, and, and are in a process of pursuing you. Father, I pray that you would help us to see ourselves clearly and see those things that we're not willing to let go of to be the kind of people who are prepared for your kingdom. God, we are called to deal with those things now. Father, I pray for those this morning who, who need to surrender their lives to you. I pray that you would give them the courage and the boldness to take that step, whether it's coming forward this morning or talking to someone later on today. God, we love you and thank you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.